Parkview Church, blessings to you and grace to you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. My name is Wade. I'm one of your pastors here at Parkview. It is my joy to be opening God's word with you this morning. We are going to be in Acts 15. Acts chapter 15 serves as the literary center of the book, chapter 15 of 28 chapters. But it is also the theological center of the book of Acts. The book of Acts, what? Kids, Kids, please be dismissed. (laughs) He was doing this, and I thought, did I miss something? Uh, What does this mean? So, (laughs) Acts 15 is the theological center of the book of Acts, meaning what we're learning today is what the book of Acts is all about. And actually, it is the very heart of Christianity. My heart is so full from engaging this passage this week. In fact, uh, 12, 13 years ago, I remember one of my great mentors and pastors in my teenage years when I lived in Phoenix. He preached a sermon on the book of Acts. And it, it was one of those sermons where it kind of had an indelible mark on my life. And so what I'm presenting to you this morning is so much shaped by, by him. His name was uh, Tim Savage, still alive and well today, and so thankful for his ministry. And my heart for you this morning, Parkview, is that you would have a whole new way of living your life because of the grace of the Lord Jesus. In Acts 15, verse 11 we see the most astonishing statement maybe ever spoken through human lips. But we believe that we will be saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus. Notice that it doesn't just say, we will be saved by grace. Grace is not an idea. Grace is not a principle. Grace is not even a theological point. It is the grace of the Lord Jesus. Jesus himself, through Acts 15, gets up close and personal with you and shares with you his very kindness and life and welcome into the Father's love. And that is what we are learning today. No matter how difficult your life is today, no matter how discouraged you are as a Christian because of the repeated failures that you keep committing against the Lord and against other people, no matter how exhausted you are, and it is easy to constantly look at your failures of you not being good enough, of you not being godly enough, or a good enough parent, or a good enough spouse, or sexually pure enough or a good financial steward enough or whatever it is to fill in the blank of what it is that you are not enough. When we tend as Christians to look at that, you better believe discouragement will come. And as one of my mentors once said, discouragement is Satan's playground in the Christian's life. And I wonder how many of us here today, the primary theme or thread or musical note of our Christian life is one of feeling discouraged because we're not doing enough for God, because we're not doing enough for other people, 
because we've not done enough to become someone who's worthy of acceptance and love by God. But Acts 15 breaks into the chaos of your discouragement and brings the joy and encouragement that Christ, Christ has done the thing for you to make you someone acceptable to God. And so that's what we're going to learn this morning. And so I'm going to read the passage out loud, just different verses. It's a long passage. So we're not going to be able to look at all the details of every part of this passage. But I'm going to highlight through my reading the main portions that we're going to focus on together to understand the main point that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ is what saves us. Nothing that we do or don't do. Let's hear God's word for us, starting in verse 1 of chapter 15 of Acts. But some men came down from Judea, right? The apostles are, Paul and Barnabas specifically, enjoying great fruits of ministry. Gentiles, chapter 13, 14, Gentiles coming to know Jesus. Non-Jewish people, Gentiles, coming to be included into the family of God. And yet here are men coming down from Judea, and they start teaching, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them, verse 5, and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So then these statements lead to verse 6. The apostles and elders of Jerusalem gathered together to consider this matter. Verse 7, and after there had been much debate, Peter stands up and says to them, Brothers, do you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe? And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Verse 10, now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of these disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. Here it is. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as these Gentiles will. After they finished speaking, verse 13, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written in Amos 9. After this, I will return. I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins. I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, that all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble these Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. So then they send this letter emphasizing the same point that Peter and James have made. Look down with me, verse 28 and 29. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit. And to us to lay on you through this letter no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what's been defiled and sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what's been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. 
Then the church receives the letter in verse 30, verse 30 to 31. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter to them. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, we do pray for verse 31 and 32 of Acts 15 to be a living felt reality for us right now together as a congregation. That if way back in the first century there was gathered together Christians who heard the good news that salvation is only by the grace of the Lord Jesus received through the empty hands of faith and they heard that good news and they rejoiced because of its encouragement, then why, Lord, would you hold back your Holy Spirit from us to taste and see and experience the very same reality? We beg for the same experience, to rejoice in the encouragement of hearing the good news that we sinful, hell-deserving, wrath-deserving, judgment-deserving sinners would be welcomed into your love and beauty of your presence by the sheer grace and work of your son, Jesus. Holy Spirit, please make this real to us today and give us joy in the freedom of it, I pray. Amen. In his magnificent book, Dynamics of Spiritual Life, theologian Richard Lovelace identifies one of the greatest tragedies of the modern church today. In fact, I think it's one of the greatest tragedies facing any person in this room here today, no matter what you believe about God or Christianity or the Bible. And this is what he says, and I just changed the language just a bit, substituting the term justification for what we see in this passage about salvation by God's grace. Listen to what Richard Lovelace says, only a fraction of the present body of Christians are solidly enjoying salvation by grace alone in Jesus. Christian people have a theoretical commitment to this teaching of salvation by grace. But in their day-to-day -day existence, they rely on their Christian activity for salvation. Few Christians know how to start every day with a thoroughgoing stand upon this gospel platform. You are accepted. Looking outward in faith and claiming the gift of God's salvation in Christ as the only ground for your acceptance before God. Here's a summary of the problem. Christians who are no longer sure, no longer confident that God loves and accepts them in Jesus, apart from their present spiritual achievements, are subconsciously radically insecure people. Here's the question this morning, Parkview Church. Are you an insecure, discouraged Christian? 
And are you discouraged and insecure because you believe that God's love and acceptance is given to you only based upon how well you are doing spiritually in your Christian activity? I might ask it this way. When it comes to salvation, being saved by God's power through Jesus, must you achieve something in order to be received by God? Must you do something in order to become someone accepted by God? Must you do something in order to become someone acceptable to God? This is the question at heart at root of Acts 15 that is seeking to answer. We're going to see this in three sections this morning. Verses 1 to 5, discouragement. Verses 6 to 29, grace. And verse, one, uh, verse 30 to 25, encouragement. Verses 1 to 5, discouragement. Verses 6 to 29, grace. Verses 30 to 35, excuse me, not 25, 35, encouragement. Discouragement, grace, Encouragement. Verses 1 to 5, discouragement. For context, right, in the first several chapters before Acts 15, Paul and Barnabas are rejoicing with other believers. We actually see this in verses 2 to 4 of our text, that they're going around and sharing and encouraging and bringing joy to fellow Christians by declaring all that God has done through Jesus to draw Gentiles to saving faith. But in the midst of these encouraging reports, verse 1, certain men from Judea come down and begin teaching something horribly discouraging. In fact, it might be the most discouraging message you will ever hear. Verse 1, unless you are circumcised, Gentiles, becoming like Jewish people, unless you do that, You cannot be saved. And then more discouraging teaching as Paul and Barnabas head to Jerusalem. They arrive there. Verse 5, there are some Pharisee believers who stand up and say, it is necessary, meaning in the Greek, in the original, this this is God's will. It's God's command, they believe. God's command is to circumcise the Gentiles and to order them to keep the law of Moses. And that's how they will be saved. Parkview, is there anything more discouraging than that? Unless you do this thing, circumcision, cutting off the skin of the man, you cannot be saved. Unless you do something, you cannot become someone acceptable to God, worthy of God's love and his work in his life, in your life, his salvation, his power to rescue you from your wicked rebellion to rescue you and to place you into his family of love and grace and peace. You must do something for that to happen. As Richard Lovelace says, this creates radically insecure people thinking that only God loves you and accepts you because of something you must do. And more seriously than maybe insecurity, I would argue it sets you up for a spiritual life of depression and anxiety and trouble. Later in the passage, this is not just my thinking, the apostles actually use these same words to describe this discouraging teaching that you must do something in order to be someone for God's acceptance. Look at verse 10 of this passage. I know I'm kind of jumping sections here, but just to understand what's going on in this teaching, verse 10, 
the apostles say, why would we place a yoke on their necks that we are not able to bear? What an image. A yoke on the neck of someone that is so heavy, they, they can't bear it. They, they, can't, they can't stand up underneath it. It's so burdensome. Verse 24, these people have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds. Unbearable burden, troubling words, unsettled minds. The human heart, according to the Bible, is not able to bear up under such words, such discouragement, that unless you do something for God, you cannot be somebody worthy of God's love. In today's culture, I know that we don't think very much of circumcision as a way of getting saved, But we hear all sorts of similar teaching, and we so quickly believe it. Unless you fill in the blank, you cannot be saved. Unless you seek social justice. Unless you vote Democrat. Unless you vote Republican. You cannot be saved, a.k.a. you cannot actually be a real Christian. Unless you are nice and kind and generous to people. You cannot be saved unless you are busy with Christian activity, Bible reading, praying more, praying longer, small group relationships, serving in ministry. You cannot be saved unless you stop sinning so terribly, stop making a mess of your life, stop being such a disgusting person, start living more like Jesus. Unless you do this, you cannot be saved. Now, maybe for some of us here, you're not quite that religious or that spiritual. But the perverted human tendency to do something in order to become someone for God has infected every single one of us, whether you like it or not. Unless you diet and exercise the right way. You cannot be saved. Of course, salvation here being a perfect body that is adored by other people. Unless you climb the corporate ladder at work, you cannot be saved. Salvation here, of course, being maximum success and being praised and respected by other people. Unless you parent your child in a certain way toward good behavior and a successful adulthood, you cannot be saved. Salvation here being that your child proves how successful you are, granting you the security of other people thinking that you are a great parent. Unless you, what is it for you? Fill in the blank. Unless you do something, you cannot be someone to God. Unless they get circumcised, they cannot be saved. And when the focus is on what we must do in order to be saved, in order to belong to God and his people, it puts an unbearable weight of insecurity. It troubles us. It unsettles our minds. Anyone here suffocating from anxiety? Because as as you look at your life, you don't think you measure up. You're not good enough, attractive enough, successful enough. Enough. Christians who no longer, remember the loveless quote, no longer are sure that God loves and accepts them through Jesus alone, apart from their present spiritual accomplishments, are subconsciously radically insecure people. Discourage, discouraged people. 
novelist and journalist William Storr, not himself a Christian, he says it this way in terms of diagnosing the modern person. He says this, the modern person, the typical modern person in today and late modern Western culture is suffering and dying under the torture of the fantasy self they are failing to become. Does anyone resonate with that one? We're carrying a weight of discouragement to do something in order to become someone accepted and loved by God, and so therefore it is urgent for us to settle this matter, for us to move from being troubled to being secure, from being unsettled to having a calm assurance of how exactly God thinks about you every day of your life. How does God feel about you in the midst of your spiritual failures and your lack of measuring up spiritually each day of your life? How does God feel about you? Are you assured of that answer? Well, the apostles are wanting to make things very clear to bring much assurance, and so that's why we move to our second section about grace. This section is sort of complex in different ways, but really the main teaching is about the revelation and clarification of the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Verse 6, the apostles and elders gathered together to consider this matter. Is it true? Is it true that you have to be someone in order to be accepted by God? And so two primary apostles stand up and clarify the good news of the gospel of grace in Jesus. And it's Peter first, and he clarifies the vertical dimension of grace. And then it's James who then gets his chance up to bat, so to speak. And he clarifies the horizontal dimension of grace. But first to Peter. Peter presents the good news of the grace of Jesus. Look at verses 7 to 11. And I want you to notice the emphasis on God's action and on God's action alone. Verse 7, in the early days, during the Peter's mission to the Gentiles, specifically Cornelius, right? Peter says, God made a choice. God made a choice that by, mouth, by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. God's choice for us to hear the gospel and believe. Then he continues, verse 8, And God who knows hearts bore witness to the Gentiles by giving them the Holy Spirit. God fills us right now with the fullness of his presence through his Holy Spirit. And then verse 9, Peter continues, And thirdly, God made no distinction between us, Jews, and them, Gentiles, having cleansed their hearts by faith. God cleansing our hearts from all past and present and future guilt and defilement and twistedness of sin in our hearts all of that cleansed by faith and empty-handed trust clinging to Jesus. You see what God has done, Peter says? What God has done, he has both enabled the hearing of the gospel and the believing of the gospel. God has, verse 8, given the Holy Spirit to fill us up presently with his joy and righteousness and peace. And he has given us new hearts, our past entirely cleansed by Jesus. God, Peter is saying, has done something to make you someone. And Peter's so fired up by this reality that he ends up berating those who keep insisting that you must do something in order to become someone worthy 
for God. Verse 10, why are you putting God at the test by placing a yoke on their necks that no one is able to bear? Because Peter is explaining that to tell someone that they must do something in order to become worthy and acceptable of God's love, you do two terrible things at the very same time. First, you put God to the test, the living, true God. You put him to the test. It's Old Testament language of living in unbelief, in rank, horrible, middle finger rejection of God, that he is not strong enough that God is not good enough, that God is not loving enough to save people from their greatest problem and ailment. You put God to the test, you test, though God has made that clear all throughout scripture, you are saying nope to God's operation and how he works in salvation. And at the very same time, what does he say? Put God to the test by putting burden on other humans unbearable to them. And could you imagine putting a 100-pound weight over the neck of a three-year-old girl and then telling her, come on, sweetie, come on, do something, do something, move, try. That's what it's like to hear the news that you must be circumcised or that unless you do something, you cannot be accepted by God. How horrible how suffocating, how discouraging to hear that news. So when humans are crushed by the reality that we actually cannot do anything to become someone worthy of God, two things happen. I wonder if you've noticed this in your own heart. Two things happen, brothers and sisters. Either A, on the one hand, we try to weave together a self-made salvation that is as reliable in saving us from sin and judgment as a spider web is reliable to stop a falling avalanche. But what we try to do is we try to do more Christian activity or more things for God or try to abstain from certain things. We try harder and harder to create something in us that we might present to God. We keep looking at the stuff that we do to make us acceptable to God which just leads to further anxiety and further exhaustion and further burdens that none of us can bear. Or you turn away from all of that nonsense and foolishness and self-righteous craziness and you collapse into the open arms of Jesus Christ. Verse 11, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus, just as they will. Peter is resisting to play games with the thought that you can do something in order to become someone acceptable and pleasing to God. Because Peter knows the greatest truth in the universe is that the way that bent and broken and defiled and corrupted and rebellious, sinful men and women that all of us are, the only hope that you have 
to be saved, to be put in a right relationship with the holy God of love who has made all things and therefore deserves perfect worship and obedience and love, the only way that happens is not through what you do, but through what Jesus Christ has done for you in his perfect life and his guilty death and his life-giving resurrection. We believe at Parkview Church and what Christians have always believed throughout the centuries that men and women can only be saved through the grace of Jesus Christ alone. Full stop. Good news, Parkview, that for those of us who have turned away from our silly games of trying to save ourselves by being good enough or whatever it is that you look to to put you in a right relationship with God, you say no more to that nonsense, crazy foolishness and you collapse your exhausted self into the open arms of Jesus Christ who loves and enjoys saving sinners like you and me. No more troubled minds, no more unsettled, anxious living, peace, calm, assurance. Jesus and his grace alone saves you full stop. Christianity is not about you being good enough, nor is it about you not doing the bad stuff. It's not about you fundamentally. It is about Jesus Christ and what he's done to make you a new person because Jesus Christ, think of this, Jesus is the greatest someone in the universe. And he came into this miserable world and entered into your deepest failure and sin. And he did the thing that you and I could never do. Obeying the law of God, loving God and neighbor perfectly that none of us have done. We look at our lives and it's littered brokenness of rejection of God and harm towards other people. Jesus looks back on his life, and it's a perfect 100% A+. Amazing. He's the only person who's ever been able to pull it off. And he did the thing that we should have done, but can't do. And then Jesus, the greatest somebody, is crucified on a cross. And have you ever figured out what first century crucifixion was fundamentally about? It was about annihilating a person's integrity and dignity. Because as you die in first century Rome, under, so to speak, the heel that's crushing you of the Roman government, you die naked as people mock you. You're a nobody. You are nothing in that moment. And you know what the gospel is telling us? That Jesus Christ entered that place of becoming a nobody so that he can make you into somebody. And Jesus did all of that for you. Here's what I'm trying to say to you, Parkview Church. Read my lips, please. In Jesus, you have already become someone. In Jesus, you've already been promoted from death to life. In Jesus, your past no longer haunts you because it was placed on Jesus. And the promise of Jesus Christ is that he will turn your greatest regret into unspeakable glory when you arrive in heaven. In Jesus, your present failure does not condemn you because he took all of that. He said, it is finished on that cross. So stop abusing yourself with self-afflicted shame because that is not Jesus. That is Satan seeking to harm you. 
In Jesus, your future is not one of impending doom or fear or sadness, but one of eternal and perfect and unending joy and new creation. In Jesus, you already have become the truly successful self that you wish you were when you were in high school. But now you, there you are, a 47-year-old, and your life kind of feels kind of boring, dumb, and just stupid. But you know what? In Jesus, you have been given what matters most and what is true success, which is knowing the living God of the Bible and having fellowship with his people in the church. If you have that, you are a major success to the Lord Jesus, and he's done that for you by his grace. In Jesus, you've already passed the test. You've made the cut. You got the offer you always dreamed of. You have the undamageable approval of the three persons in the universe who matter most, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In Jesus, you already went through all the disapproval and judgment that you fear. That's already been dealt with at the cross in the first century when Jesus died there in Roman crucifixion. In Jesus, you're already loved. You're already accepted. You are delighted in. You are delighted in. You are adored and welcomed in. You are home in Jesus. You are filled in Jesus. You are satisfied in Jesus. You are safe and secure in Jesus. I'm not sure what your heart craves most or fears most when you are awake at 3 a.m. in the morning and you can't fall asleep because of your anxiety. But the most fearful thing that could ever happen to you, dying under the eternal wrath of God and hell forever, that has already been dealt with. And the happiest, most amazing thing that you could ever wish for, that you could ever crave in your heart, having loving fellowship with the living triune God, that's already been given to you in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. What I'm trying to tell you is what God's word is telling you from Acts 15. Verse 11, do you believe this, Parkview? We believe that we will be saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing that you deserve Nothing that you can do. You cannot flex any of your muscles to impress God. Jesus has already done it. So why are you exhausting yourself by your unbelief and by my discouragement that I keep having in my life? Why are we so discouraged if this is true? Why are we so discouraged? Well, one reason I think is because we need to explore the rest of the passage. In the rest of the passage, and I'll just very kind of concisely move through this, verses 13 to 29, James then stands up. And basically what James does is James just takes a big, huge scripture stamp of approval on what Peter has just declared. And he quotes from Amos 9 in verses 16 to 17, basically saying that, in this future time, God's people, the Gentiles, will be brought into God's family through the coming David, Davidic king. And we know that is Jesus. And then from that, he then exhorts the believers, verses 20 and also verse 29, to abstain, the Gentiles, to abstain from four things. Food polluted by idols, sexual morality, strangled, strangled uh, animals, and blood. And we don't have to get to all the details. In fact, actually, the best commentaries are still kind of unclear. What exactly 
is James talking about here? But what is clear for certain is this, is that when you become a person who has new life by the grace of Jesus, you then will live differently. Yes, it is true that you don't need to do something to become someone because Jesus has done that. But once you become that new someone, you must abstain. You must turn away from your old life, your sin, your idolatries, your sexual immorality, the things in your life that would hinder your fellowship with other believers, would hinder enjoying your relationship with God, and would hinder your witness to other people around you. In Galatians 5, Paul fascinatingly enough, who's there in this Jerusalem council in Acts 15, says this, Christ has set you free, for in Christ circumcision nor uncircumcision don't matter, but only faith in Christ express through love for one another. And that's what James is urging in both his pronouncement and in his letter to these Gentile Christians. He's saying, if you have faith in Jesus alone to save you by grace alone, then you better believe there's a new life of love for those around you. Therefore, Gentiles, abstain. Remove yourself from the things that in a Jewish culture, blood, sacrifice to animals, sexual morality, those things would corrupt your ability to be able to have good fellowship with one another. And fellowship with one another is the results of God's grace in our lives. Now look at verses 31 to 32, which is our final point. And is what grace, if we truly believe grace vertical, that it transforms grace horizontal, what it does is it creates a culture of encouragement. Doug Fern, I loved your sermon last week, and I think I quote you verbatim. You said, the gospel creates a culture of encouragement, or I'm close enough. You said, the gospel creates a culture of encouragement. And here in Acts 15, we understand why. Because we understand that we cannot do anything in order to become someone accepted by God. But what happens in the Christian life and what happened to me this week is we become discouraged. And if that happens to you, which happens to me often, what we need is what's given to us in verse 31 and 32. The congregation gathers together. They hear the letter from the apostles clarifying that you don't have to do something to become someone acceptable to God. And they rejoice because of its encouragement. But then verse 32, and Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers, with words, many words. What words? Words about how we as Christians, united in love through the grace of Jesus, can speak to one another the good words of grace to encourage one another amidst our stumbling and fumbling and discouragement at the very heart of healthy Christian community, brothers and sisters, is a culture of encouragement because our hearts are so prone to discouragement. And we must communicate to one another the words of grace. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says it like this, Life Together. I'm quoting Life Together, Fern, so now you are very happy, brother. One of your favorite books. I think this is, is, this is exactly what, what grace of God should take us as a community. God has willed, says Bonhoeffer, that the Christian needs another Christian to speak God's word to him. He needs him again and again when he becomes discouraged. For by himself, he cannot keep himself without rejecting the truth. 
He needs his brother as a bearer and proclaimer of the divine word of salvation by grace alone. He needs his brother solely because of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, we have every reason to be a community of encouragement because we have the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that has come down to us from above, from him personally, But it's not just to stop with us. We are to look around and notice the ways in which our brothers and sisters are discouraged because we keep hearing the message and keep believing the message that you've got to do something and do something and do something in order to become someone acceptable to God. And it's a burden we cannot bear. But in Christian community, we come around each other and take off the burdens that we place on ourselves and we take them off and we give them the relief of the grace of God in Christ. They hear the message of grace, verse 31, and they rejoice because of its encouragement. And then the brothers encourage each other with many words. That is local church Parkview East Campus ministry right there. So are you discouraged this morning? Number one, the Lord Jesus himself loves you. And number two, the Lord Jesus has placed other brothers and sisters in your life to come alongside you in your discouragement, to look you in the eyes and say, remember the grace of the Lord Jesus. We believe in the grace of the Lord Jesus to save us. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for grace alone, for grace alone in Jesus Christ. There is no hope for us without that. And so because of grace alone, because Jesus, you delight to save us, rebels, wretched, broken, twisted, hearted people, to rescue us, to pluck us up from that death and to place us into your life by your sheer act, just received happily by faith. That grace, Lord, then turns us into a people where we flick on our radars to to look out and see who's discouraged this morning, who's discouraged this week, how can I come alongside them and take off that burden that you no longer have to do something to be accepted and loved by God. Christ has done that something. Lord, would you put that gospel grace words on our lips here at East Campus. Fill us with your spirit so we would be people of encouragement. Encourage Encourage, encourage. With many words, they encouraged each other. Lord, we rejoice in this great news. For your glory, amen.